Well, good evening. Good to see you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 12? Exodus 12. Now, the last time we met, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They had made the Exodus. In fact, let's pick it up in verse 37, just to kind of get a running start on tonight's study. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on the very same day. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Now, there are some people that spend their entire lives working through biblical timelines, just so we can have the dates of things. And I thank God for them. I am not one of them. And uh, they tell us, based on 1 Kings 6, verse 1, uh, that the Exodus took place 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign, which was 966 B.C. That means that the date of the Exodus was 1446 B.C., and that Jacob's descendants had been in Egypt since 1876 B.C., or 430 years earlier. So I've always put the Exodus around 1500 B.C., just to kind of round it off, okay? And uh, so, But 1446 B.C., now it says they spent exactly 430 years in Egypt. Both Genesis 15, verse 13, and Acts chapter 7, verse 6, says it was 400 years, but that was just a round number, all right, a round number. We do know that Galatians 3, verse 17, uh, says it was exactly 430 years. But most conservative scholars, uh, biblical scholars, accept the uh, 1446 B.C. as the date of the Exodus. Verse 43, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who has bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. So the Passover meal was only for those who were a part of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And the sign of the Adamic covenant, excuse me, the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Uh, the idea here that no foreigner uh, was allowed to eat the Passover meant that no one outside the covenant uh, that God made with Israel could eat the Passover. Now, if a Gentile wanted to become a proselyte to Judaism, undergo the rite of circumcision, then they would be brought into the covenant that God made with Israel, and they would be allowed then to eat the Passover meal. Verse 48 tells us that. But guys, understand the Passover meal under the Old Covenant and the Lord's Supper under the New Covenant are the same in principle. They're both memorial meals that celebrate redemption, right? In the Passover celebrates 
Israel's redemption out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, the Lord's Supper, of course, Paul says every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death till he comes. And the idea behind proclaiming his death is that through his blood, we've been redeemed out of the bondage of sin and death. They're both memorial meals that commemorate redemption, Old Testament redemption from Egypt under the New Covenant, redemption from the power of sin and Satan. But uh, just like God forbid any unbeliever from eating uh, the Passover meal, you had to be a member of the covenant of God to do it, to eat of it. Uh, the New Testament forbids any unbeliever from observing the Lord's Supper, communion. That's why when we take communion, and I'm not sure I do this every time, but um, we make it a point to say something to the effect, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we strongly encourage you not to eat or partake of communion, the Lord's Supper. It's only for those who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, who are now have now entered into the new covenant through his blood. You are now a part of the family of God. You're the redeemed, and you have the right to now partake of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of the great work he did on our behalf, how through the shedding of his blood we now have remission of sins, fellowship with him, and a place in heaven waiting for us that never fades, will never fade away. But um, it, the Bible is very clear on this, that, uh, that you, know, you cannot partake of communion unless you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And just like circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, so water baptism is a sign of the new covenant in Christ. Verse 46, God says, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh of this Passover lamb outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. God is no respecter of persons. We all approach them the same way through the blood of the Lamb. All right? uh, in Israel, God is saying the foreigner, the unbeliever, the, the Gentile may eat, but they have to become a part of the covenant. But the idea that none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But uh, it also points to Jesus because John him, himself, who wrote the Gospel of John, of course, in uh, chapter 19, verses 31 to 36, uh, John quotes this because remember when the thieves were on the cross excuse me the two thieves and then jesus was on the cross on that uh, uh when they were crucified uh because the the sun was starting to set and the next day was a, a sabbath they didn't want to leave the uh the people on the crosses through the sabbath or into the sabbath and so what they would do to hasten death they would uh, break the legs of those who were being crucified because part of it was you had to use your legs to push up on the nails in your feet to, to get enough air into your lungs. It was a horrible way to die. It took a long time. And so you'd pull yourself up by the nails in your hands and push yourself up with the nail in your feet to just get enough of, of, a, of the ability to, to get a gasp of air and then you'd slump down again. Well, if you break their legs, obviously they're not going to be able to do that. They'll die of asphyxiation rather quickly. They came to Jesus, though, after they broke the thieves' the legs of the two thieves on either side of Christ, they came to him and found out he was already dead. 
So they didn't break his bones. And John said that was according to the scripture, not a bone of his should be broken. Jesus picked the time of his death. He determined when he would dismiss his spirit and so on. Now, verse 50, thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And as we said last time, the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt in one night, but then took 40 years to deliver Egypt out of them, all right? like all of us, really. Chapter 13, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So God spared the firstborn of Israel, those who were redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the blood put on the doorposts and lentil of the houses. God redeemed them. He spared them because the blood was applied to those houses. Uh, but now God claims these for his, himself. And from this time on, all the males that open the womb of both man and beast belong to God. They belong to God. When we under the new covenant, applied the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to our lives, uh, we were redeemed, of course, from the slavery to Satan and sin, and also redeemed from coming judgment, right? But now God lays ownership to us, okay? Just like God said, look, I have allowed the firstborn to be spared when I saw the blood applied to the houses, but they belong to me, and just the same with us. When we apply the blood of Christ to our lives and get saved, God says, okay, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, but you belong to me now. You belong to me. And uh, he claims ownership. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, why don't you turn there? 1 Corinthians 6, I know you know this scripture, but it's good to read it again, because we're talking about this very thing, or Paul is in 1 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own for you were bought at a price therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's and the idea of being bought with a price is the idea of redemption we were the slaves of satan and god through the blood of christ has redeemed us all right and now we belong to him just like any slave in that culture who was in the marketplace the agora uh being sold okay and somebody stepped up and and, and paid the price of redemption they would buy that slave for themselves, but the slave belonged to them. We are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Paul says that, you know, we are not to glorify him with our body and so on, spirit, because we belong to him. This is something that is a staple of the Christian faith, and yet so many Christians today are missing it. They, they don't really understand what's involved when they gave their heart to Christ. They kind of think that, you know, God belongs to them, all right? Uh, you know, what's God going to do for me now? Because really kind of they think of themselves as the one in the driver's seat. And now God's on my team. God's going to do what I want him to do. And you even have name it, claim it theology that basically puts you in the driver's seat and says, look, if you have enough faith, you can, you can name it, you can have it, uh, claim it, it's yours, and so on. And it makes God the servant, and us, the master, very completely backwards. To become a Christian means we give up all rights to our lives. 
We were once free men and women in the sense we did what we wanted to do. We were the masters, really. Satan really was, but we thought we were the masters of our own lives. But once we gave our hearts to Christ, he became our master. He became our Lord. And uh, we are now to live for him. Now, verse 3 of chapter 13. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib. The month of the Exodus uh, was the first month of their religious calendar year, the month of Nisan. And uh, it corresponds, as we've already said, to our late March, early April period, depending on, it's a lunar calendar they were under, so depending on, you know, when the, uh, the, the moon, full moon was and so on. But uh, why does God call it the month of Abib? Well, from what I understand, that was uh, the original Canaanite word for this month before God changed it. But the word Abib means green ear or stalk. And the idea was it was the spring of the year, the time of the year when the first shoots of the barley and wheat harvest came up out of the ground. It was a time of, of new birth, really. This corresponded to the Passover when God brought them out of Egypt. It spoke of a new beginning. This is when the nation was truly born. So this was the beginning of a new relationship that Israel had with God. Uh, they were his covenant people now. That happened at Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt. But uh, as such, uh, it was a new beginning, which we've talked about, okay? A new beginning. And then later on, as we're going to see God, so he's talking here about the Passover feast, Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we've talked about last week. Passover fell, fell on the 14th of Nisan. And then starting on the 15th and running for seven consecutive days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, he's been talking quite a bit about that. Uh, Passover speaks of redemption. Unleavened bread speaks of uh, sanctification or holiness being set apart for God now as his own special people. We belong to him. Uh, again, we were bought at a price, so now we are to glorify him with our, with our lives. God is going to institute another feast during the, fe the week of unleavened bread, the Feast of first fruits, Because during that seven-day period, you had a Sunday. And that Sunday would become the Feast of first fruits, Right? Uh, going along with the very thing we're talking about, and what happened was it was an agricultural feast primarily, and when the first shoots of the barley harvest or wheat harvest began to poke their way up out of the ground, uh, they were to cut down on this feast some of the, these first shoots or these first fruits of the coming harvest, and they were to take them down to the temple and offer them to the Lord as a wave offering. And the idea was, and God is going to institute this later on, that just like the firstborn of the womb, both man and beast, belong to God, so also the first fruits of the land belong to God. And God was trying to communicate to them to get it in their hearts, and this is a good lesson for all of us, that He had to be first. He is our God, we are His people, and He wants to be first in our lives. He wants to be honored with the first fruits of our week, our time, uh, our uh, harvest back then, you know, even the animals and so on that uh, opened the womb. God was laying down a principle. If you put me first, I will bless your life. If you seek to put yourself first. Now, we see this in the book of Haggai. When God brought them back out of, Egypt, uh, out of the Babylonian captivity, he brought them back to uh, Jerusalem, and the city was literally one big pile of stones 
The Babylonians had completely raised it to the foundation. I mean, just a big pile of stones. The temple the same way. It was completely destroyed, right? So here are the people. Now, they've just come back from Babylonian captivity, and they begin the very arduous task of rebuilding. And the first thing they did was cleared all the stones away from the temple mount and began to build the temple. But, you know, as somebody has said, when you've got a million rocks to move, you can work all day, backbreaking work, and you look, and it looks like you've done nothing. So pretty quickly, the people got discouraged. That's what they do. They stopped building the temple of God and started focusing on their own houses. And it wasn't just building, you know, just uh, some basic living quarters. They, they really got into it. And they're putting up paneling, and they're really going to town. And at one point, God says, you know, he blows the whistle, says, time out. You say it's not time to build my house. Is it time to build your houses? Look, he says, don't you understand what's going on here? You're working all day. You make On all the money you make, you, you put it into bags with holes in it. You never have enough. He says, I'm doing that because you're not putting me first. No matter how hard you work, I'm blowing all the blessings away. Go ahead and put me first. Build my house, and I will bless you again because the priority is right. This is how it always is, guys. We, you know, we have to make sure that we're putting God first in our lives. And so that's what he's doing here with these feasts primarily. And the Feast of first fruits was their way of showing God once again, Lord, you're blessing us with uh, these crops. They belong to you. The first fruits are yours. And we are going to honor you by cutting them down, bringing them to the temple, offering them to you. And then God says, I will respond by giving you a bumper crop at the great harvest uh, later on. Now, verse 5 and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and Jebusites. By the way, the Jebusites lived in Jebus. And that was the name of the city of Jerusalem before David conquered it. Okay, so the Jebusites. The termites were not here. They, they came later. But uh, all these folks lived in the land of Canaan. And they were going to be driven out eventually. Um, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you should keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you uh, in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So again, God is stressing the importance of this feast of unleavened bread, which speaks of sanctification. We talked about it last week at length. All right, Passover spoke of redemption, feast of unleavened bread and sanctification. The fact that they come right back, you know, unleavened bread starts the very next day, no break in time, runs for seven days, as we said last time, spoke of the fact that once you're redeemed, you are to immediately begin living a new life, an unleavened life, a holy life. Seven is the number of completeness. It's, we are to be a completely holy people, right? Uh, because we're, we're also a new nation. When we became, got saved, we immediately became part of a holy nation. Peter talks about that, right? We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and so on. We're the redeemed, the covenant people uh, of the new covenant, of this New Testament period. But um, God want, wanted to stress to them, again, the importance of living an unleavened life. Leaven is a type of sin in the Bible. 
and unleavened, of course, book of holiness. But I want you to notice verse 8. He said, and you shall tell your son in that day. So God's saying it's important that you keep these feasts every year. Part of it was for the adults to remember what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. But also it was to create curiosity among the children. Uh, why do we do this, Dad? In fact, even to this day, in Jewish homes where they celebrate the Passover, uh, at one point the youngest is supposed to ask the father, Father, why is this night different from every other night? And then the father's supposed to launch into the whole Passover story and so on. So that the younger generation is uh, taught that they might pass it along to their children someday. But notice what he says. This is done because of what the Lord did for who? Us? Me. Me. When I came up from Egypt. Notice the personal pronoun me and not us in verse 8. Look, redemption is a personal experience Nations cannot be saved collectively. Only people can be saved individually. As somebody has rightly said, because, you know, we talk about salvation can't be inherited by the children. You know, children cannot inherit their parents' Christianity or their faith, right? Uh, as somebody has said, truly God has no grandchildren. He only has children. In other words, every person of every generation must apply the blood of the Passover lamb, we would say, of course, the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, to their lives. Our kids are not saved by virtue of the fact that we are Christians. Of course, under the age of accountability, which in the Old Testament was, uh, was under 20, uh, anyone who died under 20, they were under their parents' faith. But uh, after they hit 20, they had to make their own commitment to God. I don't know what the age of accountability is today under the New Covenant. I don't know. Uh, but I do know this, at one point, our kids having been, grown, having been brought up in a Christian home, at one point they have to make uh, the Christian faith their faith. Uh, it's great growing up in a Christian home, but at one point they have to decide for themselves whether or not they want to uh, apply Jesus' blood to their lives and be born again. Now, once a person does experience this, this redemption through Christ, as God said to his people in the Old Testament, uh, this experience should dominate your thinking, motivate your service, and be the focus of your life. This is not just some trivial thing. Uh, this was not one day on a calendar that they were to observe. This represented an everyday way of life, and God wanted them to realize this. Sure, we're celebrating the Passover and unleavened bread and so on, uh, once a year. However, the truths of these uh, feasts needs to live in your hearts all year long. Now look at verse 9. This experience, this, this whole thing is what God is saying, shall be assigned to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, guys, right here, I believe, started the practice of them wearing phylacteries. Listen to what God is saying. He is basically saying, look, this redemption experience is more than just a yearly feast, although you are to keep it as a yearly feast. But it's to be between your eyes, right? He talks about a memorial between your eyes. What does that mean? Well, basically, it should govern the way you think. Redemption speaks of a new life, a new existence. That should change the way we live our lives every single day. 
So it should dominate our thinking. It should be what? He said, uh, the Lord's law may be in your mouth. It should govern the way we talk. Uh, it should be on your hand. It should govern the way we live and what we do and so on. Now, what happened with the Jewish people? They decided to take this literally. And so out of it sprang eventually the practice of wearing phylacteries. A phylactery was a small leather box that they would literally strap to their foreheads and uh, then another one they would strap to their hand. And inside were various scriptures. They were literally binding the word between their eyes and to their hands. And they thought, hey, I'm keeping God's law, right? I'm keeping God's law. Let me tell you something. It's a lot easier to observe a ritual or some outward observance than it is to let God really get at the heart, which is the real issue here. It wasn't that God wanted to literally write on their foreheads his word or on their hands. He wanted it to be something that governed the way they thought, the way they talked, and the way they lived is the idea. You know, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, as most of you know. And a few weeks ago, uh, Roman Catholics went to get their, uh, their Ash Wednesday ashes on their foreheads. And of course, that was the beginning of Lent. And Lent is just about over now because it ends with Passion Week and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But of course, what comes before Ash Wednesday? Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras. And the idea was you get all your sinning out on Tuesday because starting Wednesday, you got to be holy for 40 days. And you know, when I see people walking around with the ashes on their head, I don't snicker, I don't look down. I was there. I was there. But I, I just see how sad it is to think, like the Jews, you know, how they put these boxes on their foreheads and on their hands and thought, boy, I'm really being spiritual. And people putting ashes on their foreheads and whatever, thinking, boy, this is really a mark of my spirituality. No, it's just a, a mark of ignorance. Ignorance in what is true righteousness. And it's not outward. It starts in the heart and works its way out from there in a changed life. But anyways, verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, that you sh shall set apart to the Lord uh, all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall re redeem with a lamb and if you will not redeem it then you shall break its neck and all the firstborn of of man among your sons you shall redeem now a donkey was an unclean animal uh, a symbol really of the unsaved man stubborn and defiled basically uh, you don't have to turn there but job talks about this in job 11 verse 12 for an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. What does that mean? Well, there are unbelievers and then there are unbelievers. There are some believer, unbelievers who are just, you know, um, benignly clueless. They're not antagonistic against the gospel, right? They're just kind of clueless. They're just unbelievers. Then you have those who are like wild donkeys who are rebellious donkeys are stubborn and stiff-necked right and and this is you have your atheists guys then you have your anti-theists different 
An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. An anti-theist is somebody who is uh, working against God. You have many anti-theists in our society. Then you have some who are just atheists. They're just doing their own thing. They're not really, they're not really into anything as far as, you know, they're just unbelievers. But the idea is that the donkey was a symbol of the unsaved man. Uh, stubborn, defiled. In fact, in Genesis 16, verse 12, Ishmael is likened to a wild donkey. And in Galatians 4, Paul tells us that Ishmael represents the natural or the unsaved man. Now, it is beautiful, okay, that God made it possible for the donkey, which relates to us, okay, to be redeemed, but only, of course, by a lamb dying in its place. But if somebody did not redeem it, it was to be killed as an object of God's judgment, just like any unbeliever who refuses to be redeemed then is going to die in judgment. But verse 14, so it shall be, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? That you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, that all the firstborn of my sons, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. And once again, the firstborn males of the animals belonged to God and were to be sacrificed to God. Except if they were unclean, then you can't sacrifice an unclean animal to God. But if it was a donkey, a, a beast of burden, that would help you around the farm, and you wanted to keep it, you'd had to, you had to buy it back from God. You had to redeem it, and then you, you could use it. Otherwise, if it was an unclean animal, you had to break its neck. If it was a clean animal then it would be automatically sacrificed to God, or you could redeem it too. Now, when it comes to the firstborn males of the family, I'm talking about children now, God never ever sanctified or sanctioned human sacrifice. So all the firstborn sons had to be redeemed. It was a half shekel of silver. All right? Animals, they could be killed or sacrificed at your discretion, but if it was a firstborn son, you had to redeem that son. God never at any time ever led them into child sacrifice. In fact, when they eventually did get into child sacrifice, they turned to the Baals and Ashtoreths of the land of Canaan, uh, and they began to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god Molech. At one point, God said to them, you know, this is such a horrendous thing. I, I never told you to do it. Neither did it ever enter my mind to have you sacrifice your children to me. God would never do that, never wanted them to do that. Verse 16, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. We just talked about the phylacteries, okay? Verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, the quickest way for them to come out of Egypt and go to Canaan would be to take the uh, straight coastal route uh, called the uh, Via Maris, or also known as the Way of the Sea. Uh, that would have been the quickest way. And don't forget now, you had a major trade route from the area of Canaan and then Syria uh, down into Egypt. And, uh, you know, uh, it would have taken them probably about 10 days 
to travel the, the way of the sea up from Egypt to Canaan, the fastest way to get there. But not only was it the fastest way being the main trade route, but it had good easy roads and then plenty of opportunities to buy food and water for the journey. So that would have seemed like the logical way to take them. Now, our God doesn't always follow our logic. And it's not because he's foolish, although the Bible talks about the foolishness of God, right? Which doesn't mean God is ever foolish. It just means sometimes the things he does in our lives seem foolish to us. Because, Lord, I wouldn't have done it that way. The thing about it is God never asks me my input on things. So, you know, Phil, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about never does that. And some things that God will lead us to do may seem illogical, you know, fundamentally. To take them the way God took them was way out of the way. And from just a, a, just a quick glance, you think, Lord, why in the world would you take them this way when it was so much shorter just to go north, the way of the, the sea, right up from Egypt into Canaan? There's a couple of reasons. One is stated here, one we know from history. The first one was on the main trade route, and that would have been the, the route that uh, Moses took when he left Egypt. Remember, he ran from Pharaoh uh, and then ran to Midian and spent 40 years and so on. Uh, he would have taken the normal trade route uh, that would have uh, uh, gone from Saudi Arabia to, uh, to Midian. Uh, it was a land bridge there and all, but at this time, there were many Egyptian military outposts on that main route. And God knew that, of course, they would, the children of Israel would no doubt have been stopped, detained, and who knows what else if they had gone this route. So first of all, God kept them away from the Egyptian military outpost that this trade route or this normal main route would have had. But also, if they would have gone directly north along the way of the sea, they would have passed right through Philistine country. And the first thing the Philistines would have done would have been to attack them to kill them and steal their wealth. Don't forget, they plundered the Egyptians, right? We, we read about that. Okay, back pay. And God said, before, you, we, uh, before I take you out of here, you go and ask your neighbors for articles of gold, silver, precious stones, fine clothing, and so on. This is your back pay for all the years of slavery you endured and received no pay. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. They were weighed down with a lot of wealth. And, and God says, if they go, by the way, the Philistines... Uh, the Philistines will attack them. And uh, not that God didn't know less, perhaps. No, God knew. He just, it was just God's way of saying that, look, they weren't ready for war. They were not ready for war. They needed to be taken a different way, a way that would lead them into the wilderness. The wilderness is not always a bad thing. We know that when God finally brought them to the border of the land of Canaan, from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, it was an 11-day journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, a journey that wound up taking them 40 years. God intended them to spend a little time in the wilderness. That time was going to be used to build the tabernacle, prepare the garments for the priesthood, to, uh, to learn about God, uh, his ability to provide for them, protect them, and so on. These were, uh, these were lessons in faith. They needed to learn if they were going to go into Canaan and eventually take on the giants and the Canaanites and take that land. So there, there is a, a, a part of their wilderness wanderings uh, or journey that was legitimate. 
But because of their lack of faith, which we're going to see in the weeks to come, God drove them back out into the wilderness for 40 years, okay? But right now, God knew that this was not a time for them to uh, go up against the Philistines or the Egyptian army. And so he took them on a southern route, not the northern route, the main trade route, took them on a southern route through the wilderness. But we learn later on, because after the 40 years of wandering, God does tell them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 through Moses, as they're preparing now after 40 years to go into the promised land, God tells them what the purpose of the wilderness was. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verse 2, we read, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you understand what's going on here. God is telling them that the wilderness for the younger generation, for the older generation, was a death march. Those 20 and above who refused to enter into the promised land because of the 10 evil spies, the wilderness was a death march for them, as we've talked about. So it was a coffin. For those under 20, it was a crucible. It uh, was training them and teaching them to trust God, to be humble. Not to do their own thing, right? To trust God, to be led by God, and so on. Remember that, guys. Next time you're tempted to, to uh, think that the path God is leading you on seems unnecessarily long, okay? God's told you something's going to happen. There's a goal you're working toward and so on. But it just seems like it's taking a really, really long time, longer than it should. Remember the children of Israel, how God purposely delayed they're entering into the promised land to teach them many lessons they would need to learn. Somebody has said that God is never in a hurry in our lives for the work he is preparing us for. And the greater the work, the longer the time it's going to take. So, you know, God knows what he's doing. And uh, we have to remember uh, what the psalmist said, that he leads us in the what? Right paths. Not necessarily the shortest or the easiest paths and that's why we need to learn to pray as the psalmist prayed in psalm 25 verses 4 and 5 david said show me the right path o lord <laughs> show me the right path o lord point out the road for me to follow lead me by your truth and teach me for you are the god who saves me all day long i put my hope in you the psalmist is saying the very same thing we're talking about the psalmist is saying, Lord, I don't want to be self-willed. I don't want to just wing it. I don't want to just say, well, that way looks like a good way to go, and I go that route. I want you to lead my life because you know the right paths, the paths that will lead me in the right ways to prepare me for the work that you're calling me to is the idea. And, of course, we talked about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 a couple of weeks ago where trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do. And he will show you which path to take. Exodus 13, verse 18. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. So he doesn't take them directly north. He leads them on a kind of a circuitous route. Uh, around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. I love that. 
They went up in orderly. It wasn't a free-for-all, you know, uh, knocking each other down and, and, and climbing over each other, right? When God leads us, guys, it's never chaotically. It's always orderly. Didn't Paul say that? In 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but the God of peace. And whenever I see a church service, and I don't really see them firsthand, I depend on people who have been there, and, or maybe you see something on television, a service, where, and I had a guy years ago that uh, was in the uh, Air Force, and uh, one day his buddy said to him, you got to come to my church this Sunday and check my church out. So the guy said, okay, you know. And literally he told me that everyone sat down and the pastor stepped behind the pulpit and the moment he began to open in prayer, suddenly pandemonium literally broke out. Pandemonium broke out. It was a free-for-all, chaos. People were yelling, screaming, running, falling, jumping. He said it was incredible. (laughs) And then afterwards... At coffee, they were going, and then did you see Joe jump over me? And I was rolling. She said, it was just so chaotic. I mean, I, they got some exercise. <laughs> but I, they didn't get anything spiritually to help them to walk with God that week. Look, God is not the author of confusion. He is the God of peace. He's orderly, okay? Verse 19, Exodus 13, verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Solomoth, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, guys, this was the last request that Joseph made before he died. You can read about it in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 5, where he said to his people, I'm dying, but I don't want my bones left here in Egypt. He says, God is going to visit you. That was a statement of faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, it mentions this. How by faith Joseph uh, made his brethren pledge not to leave. When God visited them and led them out of Egypt, that they would not leave his bones there in Egypt. So when Joseph died, Genesis, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph being involved and placed in a coffin in Egypt. A coffin that sat above ground for 400 years as a source of, you know, as the children of Israel would see this coffin, Mom, Dad, what is this? Well, this is the coffin that contains the bones of our great ancestor Joseph, and they would tell the story of Joseph. And someday, the reason his bones are left like this, someday God is going to visit us. And when he does, he's going to lead us out of Egypt into the promised land. And Joseph made us promise that when he did, uh, that we would not leave his bones or take them with us to be buried in the land of Canaan. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. 400 years later, Moses honored the oath that their forefathers swore to Joseph and carried his coffin and his bones with them out of Egypt and eventually buried them in the promised land. Exodus 13, verse 20. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness And the Lord went before them by day in a a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, uh, so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of, of fire by night from before the people. Now, understand that this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night was the Shekinah glory. 
the very presence of God. And guys, I want you to understand this. This, I believe, well, I think it's pretty obvious, was a massive pillar. Fire by night, cloud by day. I am thinking, and I don't think this is over-exaggerated, I am thinking that this pillar was probably a mile or two high and about a mile across. It had to be big enough to give 3 million people shade from the hot desert sun by day and then warmth and light during the cold nights in the wilderness. This pillar of fire and cloud had to be incredibly big. Can you imagine if you were the enemies of Israel there, you know, uh, and you saw this pillar coming toward you with three million people behind it, uh, um, two miles high, a mile wide? I would imagine that would have struck some fear into your heart. In fact, 40 years later, when the two spies were sent by Moses into, uh, uh, excuse me, by Joshua, uh, into the uh, uh, Jericho, remember? That was going to be the first city they were going to attack as they entered the promised land. So Joshua sent two spies, and they wound up at the house of Rahab the harlot. And what does she say to them? She says, we still remember, and our people are terrified at the power of your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt and that sight of this massive pillar leading you we're terrified of, of you guys, okay? So it was a pretty incredible sight to behold. You have to understand something. At this point in their walk with God, they were still very young. He had just led them out of Egypt. They were just learning to walk spiritually, trusting him, right? So God led them in a very visible, dynamic, unmistakable way. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. No ambiguity, right? They didn't have to pray, well, God, are you with us? Where are you leading us, Lord? No. The pillar of cloud and fire, uh, when it rose up, it started to move. Break camp. Let's follow God. God's on the move. we got to follow him. Very simple, right? Later on, when they entered the promised land, though, that changed. And God said to them, you will no longer be led this way. But the way he used to replace that uh, very visible display of God's power, what he used to replace that in how they were to be led by him from that point on was by his spirit through his word. Same way he's doing today under the new covenant, right? Turn to Nehemiah 9, verse 12. I'll just read this to you. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So Nehemiah is just reminding, of course, his people that this is how God led them in the wilderness. But the wilderness spoke of immaturity and carnality. That is not how God... Whenever I see Christians running around looking for signs and wonders, they think themselves the most spiritual in the body of Christ. I look at them as the least spiritual. If I have to constantly have dramatic signs and wonders before God is going to lead my life, then I don't really have a strong walk with him. Because the way God leads us now is through his indwelling Holy Spirit, who speaks to our hearts and through the word of God that directs our, our paths. Uh, Romans 8, verse 14. In Psalm 119, verse 105, I'll just read them to you. You can write them down. Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons, the children of God, right? And then Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. No doubt... David was thinking of the Shekinah glory, how it led God's people in the wilderness 
before they enter the promised land. And now God leads us through the light of his word, his truth, and so on, right? Now, listen, before we move on, we need to understand that even as the Jews have been delivered out of slavery, now they've been redeemed, but even as the Jews have been delivered out of slavery, they would now have to learn lessons about freedom. Slavery brings its own struggles, but then so does freedom. There are two kinds of freedom. One bad, the other good. There is unrestrained freedom, and then there is restrained or controlled freedom. Unrestrained freedom is anarchy. And anarchy, in my mind, is worse than slavery. When you have dictators in power, no, that's not the best way to live. No doubt about it. They exercise an incredible amount of authority. You don't have a lot of freedoms. Dictators don't allow uh, people to just do whatever they want. It's a controlled environment, okay? That is better than living under anarchy. There are no laws under anarchy. It's jungle law, survival of the fittest. That is unrestrained liberty. It's bad. The only freedom that is good and blessed, listen to me, is the kind that allows me to restrain my freedom by bringing it under the control of the Holy Spirit and only exercising my freedom in a way that obeys and honors God. Or to put it another way, and here's the paradox, the only freedom that is blessed is the kind that comes from being the slave of Christ. Now we understand what that means. Unbelievers would think that's double talk. There's no freedom in slavery. Oh, I beg to differ. If you're a slave of Jesus Christ, yes, you have freedom. Freedom to do what's right. Freedom to do what's right. As we've already said, guys, the goal of life isn't to find freedom. The goal of life is to find the right master. Because we're all going to serve someone or something. Joshua said that to the children of Israel before he died. As they were now in the promised land. Some of them had already started to drift away from the Lord and began to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And Joshua calls for a big meeting of the whole nation, and he challenges them. He says, look, you have to decide if you're, you can't, you can't play games with the idea. If you read the whole context, he's basically saying, look, you can't have this serve God and serve the world together. You have to choose today whom you're going to serve. Either the God, Lord God Almighty brought you out of Egypt or the gods of the Canaanites in whose land you dwell. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? But the idea was that he challenged them to make a decision. He says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. He didn't say choose this day if you're going to serve. It's not a matter of if we're going to serve, we are all going to serve someone or something. It's which God are we going to serve? The gods of this world, which can be all kinds of different things. Power, money, vanity, bacchanalia, I mean partying. There are a lot of different gods that people worship that are not the true and living God. And the goal of life isn't to find true freedom because you'll never be free of serving some God. What you need to do is find the right master to serve the right God. And of course, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, this idea that now in Christ... I am a slave of Christ, but I'm free? Is an interesting thought. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He said, all things are lawful for me. Well, if you're talking about salvation, then technically that's true. 
because I'm saved by grace, right? I mean, my good works don't get me into heaven. My bad works don't get me thrown out of heaven. I'm saved by grace. Now, that's, that's a wonderful thought, right? That all things are lawful for me. But Paul goes on to say, but all things are not helpful. If the goal of my Christian life is to be the most Christ-like I can be, then I begin to see my freedoms in a different way. Okay, yeah, I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven. However, I know that that's not going to help me become more like Christ. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I can smoke cigarettes as a Christian. Years ago, a couple came up to me after the, they were, this their first Sunday. And the first thing they did, came up to the front of the podium there, service had just ended, and the first thing they asked me was, will smoking keep a person out of heaven? And I said, no. Smoking won't keep you out of heaven. It may get you there a little sooner. But it won't, won't keep you out of heaven. Okay. Uh, but look, I'm free. I used to smoke. I'm free. God delivered me from that. Can I smoke again? Yeah. So go to heaven. But why would I want to get in bondage to that again? That, that's the idea. I love my freedom too much. To, to let anything bring me back under its control is the idea. 1 Corinthians 10.23 All things, he says, are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Same idea now is what he's talking about, okay? If the goal is to be edified, to grow in my relationship with Jesus and to be more Christ-like, then I'm not going to... See, before we got saved, we had no choice. We were the slaves of Satan and sin, right? We had no choice. We just followed like dead fish floating downstream. We just followed the current of the world. Because Satan was, in, was the, is the god of this world, and we were his slaves. So we just And we didn't even know it. We thought we were living our own lives, you know? I'm really free. You Christians, you know, you can't be. You're, you're not free like me, as I'm looking behind, you know, out from the bars, not realizing I'm in prison, Right? But once I get, got saved, I mean, God set me free from the power of sin and Satan and has given me the ability to make decisions. I don't have to do what's wrong anymore. I'm not under the control of the flesh or the devil. And as such, I need to exercise my freedom now in such a way as to only do those things that will help me grow in my relationship with Jesus. Galatians 5, 13. I'll just read it to you. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your liberty in Christ to live for your flesh anymore. Because you're only going to bring yourself back under the flesh's control. Drugs, alcohol, cigarette, whatever. Once God has delivered you, you don't have to keep walking in freedom. Romans 6, Paul says, whatever you give yourself over to again, uh, to obey, you will become a slave of that thing. The only legitimate freedom, guys, is the freedom to do good and not evil. And that only happens once I give my heart to Christ and are, become his slave, right? Chapter 14, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite baal Zephon. You shall camp before, uh, before it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. 
The wilderness has closed them in. Look at they're just wandering around out there. They're completely lost. Uh, Pharaoh was going to be saying, uh, but God says, uh, I, Pharaoh's eye will close in on them. Verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And I'm looking at the time thinking we need to really stop here. Um, should even have gotten into chapter 14. We'll, we'll get into it not next Wednesday because we won't be here. But the week after that. Um, very interesting though. Very interesting. How the Lord did not lead them on the main trade route as we said took him a southern route, a route that wound, uh, that went through a series of mountains, a, a mountain range, where they had to serpentine their way through mountain valleys and canyons, and they only led to one place, the shores of the Red Sea. That's going to cause some problems for them, as we're going to see, all right? Uh, for Moses, primarily, because they weren't real happy about this, Okay. But we'll save that for next time. All right. Father, we thank you for your word and for the lessons that you are teaching us about freedom and slavery and walking in newness of life, etc. And Father, we love you. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we are your children by virtue of the fact that we've applied the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, to our hearts. And now are members of the new covenant, uh, a special nation that you've called out of this world to be your people, a light in the darkness. And Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. Oh Lord, what a blessing it is to be free in Christ. Oh Lord, thank you. The, the world, they don't, they don't understand they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. They don't know that. They're in prison and they don't know it. They think they're free. That's the delusion. That's the deception. But Lord, as your people, we have been truly set free for freedom, Christ has set us free, but don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You told us in the book of Galatians. So, Lord, give us grace to walk in that freedom every day and not to do anything that would bring us back under Satan's control. We thank you, Father. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. And especially next week, Lord, bless our Good Friday service. And then, of course, Easter Sunday messages. We just pray you bless these. Go before us and to touch many hearts, Lord as well as bless the pastor's wife's conference this Friday evening and Saturday. That, Lord, you will go before the ladies, guide all the pastor's wives safely to the conference center. And, Lord, bless this weekend above anything these women have ever experienced in their lives. And then bring all the pastor's wives home safely to their families and churches, fired up, refreshed, uh, and ready to go. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.